Amen. Please be seated. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Hosea, chapter 12 and chapter 13, not chapter 11 and 12. A few introductory comments. This past week, I was able to attend a wonderful conference. It's kind of church camp for pastors. And uh, it was uh, delightful. I mean, it started with, you know, Lig Duncan, who's a PCA pastor. He opened the conference, and then there was John MacArthur, John Piper, Al Moeller, uh, C.J. Mahaney. Uh, there was really no shortage of just powerful sermons, seven sermons total, all of them well over an hour, I might add. And it was uh, just taking it in, and so I was uh, just enjoying it. But I also had to finish the liturgy before then, and so I changed the title of my sermon on Wednesday to what you have before you because it better suits the content of chapter 12 and chapter 13. I also had grand ideas of covering two whole chapters in Hosea, and we will cover them, uh, but recognize you'll have to hold on a bit in light of that. So have your Bibles open to Hosea 12 and Hosea 13. I won't read all the verses to begin, but instead we'll go through those verses at the various points that I attempt to make as we're studying this uh, wonderful passage to these two chapters together. Uh, just two sermons remain in this exposition of this wonderful prophecy, Hosea, uh, this week, 12 and 13, and then chapter 14 to conclude the series next week. Now, you will recall that Hosea was preaching to the northern kingdom, uh, one half of the original nation of Israel. By chapter 12 of Hosea, much time has transpired, and the northern kingdom is on its last legs. Judah's kingdom, the southern kingdom, had also begun to decline. The culture of Israel had so degraded and declined that its actions and its behaviors looked just like the Canaanites they were originally supposed to expel from the land. How did Israel go from Abraham's glorious call to near extinction? How did Israel go from Joseph's righteous reign in Egypt to the brink of divine judgment? How did Israel go from crossing the Red Sea to the, the base of Mount Sinai under Moses, receiving the law from God, now to God's glory departing from them? How did Israel go from its miraculous military campaign that saw the walls of a huge city fall down before their eyes, now to a point where they're begging Assyria to help them? How did the glory of Kings David and Solomon leave in the dark cloud of sin and depravity sweep over them? These are certainly worthy questions for any culture at any time to ask. Here now as I read just the first two word, verses of Hosea 12, and do keep your Bibles open this morning. Hosea 12, the Word of God. Ephraim feeds on the wind and pursues the east wind all day, all day long. They multiply falsehood and violence. They make a covenant with Assyria, and oil is carried to Egypt. The Lord has an indictment against Judah and will punish Jacob according to his ways. He will repay him according to his deeds. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for your holy word. We thank you for Hosea. We are humbled by the picture of spiritual adultery so vividly depicted, both by the painful marriage of Hosea and Gomer 
and the decline of Israel and its devotion to you. We are also uplifted when we see redemption, as we did in the last chapter, and we will see it again. Hosea buying back his wife despite her unfaithfulness and the forecast of your buying a wayward people for yourself through the price paid by the Lord Jesus in his own life's blood. Lord, illuminate your word this morning that we might be a people who live our lives unto you and to your glory and not for man and the fleeting nature of all his pursuits. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I think it's an interpretive mistake to make Old Testament theocratic Israel some kind of parallel with America today. In fact, as much as we sometimes in the church enjoy hearing those uh, kind of pro-America sermons, you know, how we're going down the poor, the same poor path they went down, and, and you know, America is really uh, poor and, and put off and, and spiritually destitute, and as much as we hear those and there's a certain sense in which we, we recognize there are parallels, they also leave me, anyways, a bit hopeless, a little, sort of like, what, what am I supposed to do with this? I see how bad it is, but, but how is this the case? And I see what happened to Israel, so if, are you saying that there's no hope for us? Well, I would just step back and say, I don't really think that's how we're supposed to interpret this. Uh, America's not a theocratic nation, never was, no matter how much we like to paint it as such. Uh, rather, there's deeper lessons for us to learn from Hosea. And the big one that I hope we never lose is that Israel is given to us as a picture, really, of the failure that's true of all of us in the need for save, a Savior. I mean, that's the ultimate picture, is that you have no choice but to look not unto man and his ability to succeed, even given all the possible privilege he could be given, but rather you've got to look to Christ, the one who fulfills all this failure. That's the real lesson that we learn when we study Israel. Still, we would be amiss to not analyze what went wrong in this once godly culture, Israel. I want to focus on the matter of culture a little bit more than nation as we read this text. Uh, nations are defined more by their boundaries and their laws. Culture, though, is a far more uh, telling thing. It reveals what's on the inside of people by what they do externally. That is, what they really believe shows itself in what they do. And cultures, cultures transcend even national boundaries. One writer says that culture is religion externalized and made explicit. Really, the dictionary definition for culture is that it's the ideas, the customs, the skills, the arts, etc., of a people that are transferred, communicated, or passed along as in or to succeeding generations and in the public square. Another writer says culture, as we understand it, is not simply a matter of personal preferences or likes and dislikes individually, but rather it's a, a matter of public preference. We celebrate radical individualism, but the fact is there's a culture that has a certain publicness to it, a public sense of what is right and what is wrong. That's really more what culture is. Yet another writer says that culture is the publicly explicit expression of a people's shared religion. In that light, let's consider the culture that was Israel's as Hosea's prophecy draws now to a close, we can observe how a culture goes from godliness to godlessness in order to evoke a godly response in us, the church. Let's look at some of the telling characteristics of this culture in decline that we have been noting. First, you will see, and probably most fundamental, is that they were seeking their satisfaction somewhere other than God. Look at verse 1. Ephraim 
feeds on the wind and pursues the east wind all day long. It doesn't matter what it is, what you put more passion, devotion, or energy into. If it's not God, it'll always lead to despair, emptiness, futility. It never gains anything. You keep striving after it. Whatever that stuff is, that thing is, that activity, that object of your devotion, if you look for satisfaction in it, you always end up dry, totally dry. And the picture here is Ephraim feeding on the wind and pursuing the east wind all the day long. Next time you're hungry, try to go eat the wind and see how full you get. It's a futile exercise to constantly go after the wind. And that's what they were doing, is striving after satisfaction in something other than God. Can anyone ever catch the wind? I walked out of the gas station, I had a receipt in hand, and it blew out of my hand. Now, it was one of the, for some reason, I bought some gas and they gave me a receipt like this long. So I was a little annoyed, it flew out of my hand. And it starts flying rapidly across the parking lot. Now, I don't want to be a litterer, so I'm going after it. Well, what a fool I must have looked like to someone watching as I'm running around trying to grab it, and it blows as soon as I grab it, and I can't catch the thing. I was sick of it. I wanted to just quit, but then I knew by then several people were noticing me chase it around. I had to get it at that point. It took me about a minute and a half, which seems like 10 minutes when you know people are watching you, to catch this receipt. Try to catch the wind. It's futile. It just, it's... it's, it's foolish. And they were seeking their satisfaction apart from God. Look what it says in the second part of verse 1. They multiply falsehood and violence. You know, that's what happens when you look for sustenance some other place than God. They make a covenant with Assyria and oil is carried to Egypt. But what's pictured here is Assyria to their west and to, or to their east and to their north. And then, of course, Egypt to their south. So instead of seeking satisfaction, protection, security in God, they went and tried to make treaties by buying off the Assyrians, by buying off the Egyptians. And they sought their satisfaction in the security they believed those pagan nations could provide. It's just a picture of who they trusted in, and it wasn't God any longer. They thought that their security, despite all the stories of God's amazing redemption against nations, their security, they thought, their satisfaction would be found apart from God. Unfortunately, going from a favored position, Judah, the southern kingdom, now was drawn in to the sins of the northern kingdom. Verse 2 says, The Lord has an indictment against Judah. It will punish Jacob according to his ways. He will repay him according to his deeds. So there's now a lumping in. It's not just the northern kingdom now. It's the southern kingdom heading down the same path. And then there's a reminder that brings it all together by mentioning Jacob, which we'll look at in a moment. Jacob, of course, is the the tribe's father of both Israel and Judah. But now Judah is also guilty of finding its satisfaction somewhere other than in God. And brothers and sisters, let's acknowledge personally that we seek satisfaction in all sorts of stuff instead of Christ. Our jobs may be something we want our satisfaction in, our careers, the pursuit thereof, relationships with people, we think that's where we'll ultimately get our satisfaction. Money may be the thing we think will provide us security, a sense of peace. Stuff, all sorts of stuff, stuff, stuff. Activities, food, sensual things. In a culture given over to satisfaction seeking in anything other than God will by necessity multiply sin. It will happen as they pursue after other things. Look at Hosea 13, verse 4. I think this gives the key picture, the key identifying feature 
of what is needed in the face of finding satisfaction elsewhere, God says in Hosea 13.4, But I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. You know no God but me. And besides me, there is no Savior. Watching his children go after other stuff for satisfaction, he says, I'm your God. I took you, I saved you out of Egypt. There is no other Savior. And I think as we start and we look at this and analyze this culture, don't lose this. There is no other Savior. It's God. And we know fulfilled in this Saviorship is Christ. He's the one who is the Savior. We see a glimpse of that in the chapter just preceding this. Looking to the Son who he takes out of Egypt. The Son whom whom he is pleased, unlike the sons here who have failed him. So God as Savior is the first point of reference for us when we seek satisfaction. The one who saved us is the one who can satisfy us in everything. But here we see as a sign of this culture's decline, satisfaction seeking somewhere else. Hosea 13 verse 5, right after the verse I just read, it says, It was I who knew you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. But when they had grazed, they became full, they were filled, and their heart was lifted up, therefore they forgot me. Well, that's not all we see. Let's look also at another telling characteristic of a culture in decline. Not only do they find satisfaction or seek satisfaction apart from God, there is a sort of self-sufficient pride that takes root. We've seen this throughout our study of this book, but it touches on it again here. Look back at chapter 12, verse 8. Ephraim has said, Ah, but I am rich. I have found wealth for myself. In all my labors they cannot find in me iniquity or sin. There's this self-sufficiency and this pride that comes with it. In other words, I have attained all this stuff for myself. Look at how amazing it is that I've gotten all these things. And you know, we live in a world of, of heavy mobilization. That is, even countries that are relatively primitive still can have access to things that, that are quite amazing. Whereas in this day, uh, there were only a few selected high cultures that really had all the stuff. And Israel was certainly one of them. Look at what we've got. Look what we have obtained. And it harkens back to something God warned them of that we considered back in chapter 10, when early on Moses, speaking the word of God, said to the Israelites, beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you will surely perish. They had forgotten these words of Moses. And now they were standing and saying, but I am rich. I have found wealth for myself in Hosea 12.8. There's an evidence of deep pride and self-trust. And pride itself is an unreasonable and an inordinate self-esteem when it's used in Scripture. In fact, it's personified as one of the seven deadly sins in Proverbs. In almost every list of the various sins, pride or vanity is considered the original and most serious of the seven deadly sins. And you can imagine why when you consider what prompted Adam and Eve to listen to the serpent. They wanted to be like God. They had a a sense of wanting equality with God. They wanted glory that God had because they thought somehow they deserved it. That's pride taking root. Hosea 12, verse 2 The Lord has an indictment against Judah and will punish Jacob according to his ways. He will repay him according to his deeds. Notice the reference in verse 3. In the womb, he took his brother by the heel. And in his manhood, he strove with God. There's a reference here to Jacob that's referred to a few times 
And the reference to Jacob has to do with Jacob's drive and zeal for sure, but it was also a prideful drive that drove Jacob to do what he did, even in the womb to grab his brother's heel, an amazing indictment. But that's just a picture of the way Jacob's life went. I mean, he was always working angles. He was always working deals. He he was a deceiver in that respect. And, And it's that pride of Jacob that put himself in danger often. And even put him in a position to wrestle with the messenger of God. Possibly the second person of the Trinity, the angel he wrestled with in order to receive a blessing from him. Refers to this, so talks of him striving with the angel in verse 4. And he prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. He wouldn't let go. There's a certain intrinsic pride about Jacob that wouldn't even let him let go of the angel even though he was injured. This guy was confident to say the least. And this confident guy, who is an admixture, just like all of us, of sin and righteousness that God was working in him, this guy was their father. In a way, they emulated to a sinful degree the pride of Jacob, and now was coming to roost on them. 12.5 says, He met God at Bethel, and there God spoke with us. Now God reminds them of who they should find their pride in, not themselves. Verse 5 says, The Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord is his memorial name. So you, by the help of your God, return, hold fast to love and justice, and wait continually for your God. A merchant in whose hands are false balances he loves to oppress. Ephraim has said, ah, but I am rich. I have found wealth for myself. In all my labors they cannot find in me iniquity or sin. Pride had taken hold of these people, and they really believed that their state of blessing, the place they were at, the land that they enjoyed, all the blessings was because of them and their skills. Hey, it's springtime. In my lawn's popping up these little yellow nasty things. Now, some of you who nuke your lawns probably don't have this problem as much. But for us environmentalists who don't want to spend the money to nuke our lawns, every year this battle happens, and it's starting already. These dandelions start cropping up. And I put all sorts of chemicals on them that are much cheaper than the nukes that you would buy from those big trucks that come by. And I put it all on there, and I tell the kids, stay away from the lawn for a few days and and want to zap it. And it never matters. They keep coming back every time. They keep coming back. I don't know what I have to do. I even get the kind you put on your hose, and you spray that one dandelion. It's personal at that point, and you spray it down, and it still sits there. And one comes back to the same place the next year. Pride is just like that. You have moments of humility, times where God humbles us, and it's a blessed time, no doubt. But you know and I know that there's that root still in us, in this side of heaven, and it comes back up. I've heard one author use the exact same illustration, saying that pride is the dandelion of the soul. Its root goes deep, only a little left behind sprouts again. Its seeds lodge in the tiniest encouraging cracks, and it flourishes in good soil. That's what pride is in our lives That's what pride is in any culture that thinks of itself as great because of its own doing. Augustine said, pride is the commencement of all sin because it is with this which overthrew the devil from whom arose the original origin of sin and afterward when his malice and envy pursued man who was yet standing in his uprightness, it subverted him in the same way in which he himself, Satan, fell. For the serpent, in fact, only sought For the door of pride whereby to enter when he said, ye shall be gods. Hey, we have American pride, don't we? Getting outside of this country a few times is the first time I realized that not everybody wants to be American like we think. 
I always thought that. It's such a great place. Everyone would want to come here. Our technology is better. Our economy is better. Our work ethic is better. Our system of government is better. Our standard of living is better. Our landscape is better. Our military power is better. Look what we have. Look what we've done. Doesn't everyone want to come here? But before we go too far on that parallel, what about the church? I mean, don't we do this in the church to some degree in America? Someone was just telling me yesterday that they were deciding, a church that they knew of were deciding on a pastor based on what pastor would help them compete better with the other church that was like them. I mean, what is that? That's a pride that's built into the church that sees it as in competition with other bodies of believers. Church might say, look at what, what we're doing for the kingdom. I once got a transfer letter from a person who was leaving a church to come to our church, and in the letter from the other church, it listed all the missionaries that it supported, hundreds of missionaries it supported, just to let us know what they were doing for the kingdom. We churches do it all the time. Look at our building. It's so much better than everyone else's. You'll know which one it is. You can't miss it. I've said it myself. Look what we've built. Look at the growth. Our doctrine is superior to everyone else's. Our theology is far superior to them. Oh, isn't that cute what they think over there? Our way of worshiping is better than other churches. Look at who we are, what we have, what we've done. Proverbs says to us, by pride comes nothing but strife. But with those who take advice, there is wisdom. In James it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And James also says, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. And 1 Peter 5, 6 says the same thing. One of the marks of a declining culture is when it is so filled with pride, and that can be applied to a nation or a culture as well as a church. But also we can see another characteristic, blatant sin going unchallenged. And some of these others I'll touch on more briefly, but you will see them nonetheless. Blatant sin going unchallenged. Look at the first verse of Hosea 12 again. Ephraim feeds on the wind and pursues the east wind all day long. They multiply falsehood and violence. They make a covenant with Assyria and oil is carried to Egypt. Sin goes on unchallenged. And when it goes on unchallenged, it necessarily multiplies. Just like the dandelions, if you just get fed up one year and let them go, your neighbors will be very upset with you, but just let them go one time, they'll come back fourfold the next year. It just gets worse and worse. So if you don't challenge them, uh, they will come back and they'll come back worse. So unchallenging, uh, not challenging or ignoring will always lead to multiplication. And eventually, it just gets denied. It's not there. I don't see it. Or there, it's good. That's the process. John Walters is the U.S. drug czar. He's the guy that heads up the agency of the government that tries to keep out drug trafficking. And I heard an interview with him this week while I was driving. And it was very interesting what he said because he's very proud of the accomplishments that his agency has had with regard to lowering drug trafficking. And the interviewer says, doesn't it seem hopeless to you? Doesn't it seem like you would never, ever stop this? And he said, well, our goal isn't to stop it. We're, we're not unreasonable. We know human nature and there will always be this drive to have these drugs somehow. Our goal is to so disrupt it that it never takes complete mastery over our culture. I thought that's very interesting because we have to be honest about sin in our own culture. It's not that we think we're going to eradicate sin completely this side of heaven, but we have to confront it, we have to acknowledge it by God's grace so that it keeps it at bay, so that it doesn't utterly take over the culture. That's primarily the job of the church. 
both by the way the church reacts to God's grace, lives out God's grace, confronts sin, and then applies that salt to the wider culture. No one's saying we're going to eradicate it or make it somehow illegal to sin. We know this can't be done, but we do believe it can be disrupted in a major, graceful way. Verse 7 of Hosea 12 says, A merchant in whose hands are false balances he loves to oppress. You, you get this picture of falsehood and sin pervading. But notice what the response is in verse 8. Ephraim has said, I am, but I am rich. I have found wealth for myself. And notice this phrase, in all my labors, they cannot find in me iniquity or sin. It's gone from not challenging sin to ignoring sin to just denying it outright, that it's not happening. Despite Paul's revealing to us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, uh, the inhabitants of this culture had come to a point where they did not believe anything could really be defined as sin. And that's really a problem in our day. I find when you're sharing Christ with people today, uh, my, my approach is always to try to bring them to see their own sin, just even by confessing my own, that we need a Savior. And most people, it seemed even not too long ago, would acknowledge at some point they were sinners. But more and more it's become uh, really a matter of your opinion versus someone else's, and no one could really say it's sin. I was at the hotel on the second day that I was at the conference, and I walked into the gift shop to try to find some stuff to bring home. And as I was there, I was talking to the store, uh, the guy who owns the store and who was working there. He asked me who I was and why I was there, and you'll love what he said. He said, so you're a pastor. At what church? I said, I'm Presbyterian. He goes, oh, you're, at least you're not as whacked out as the rest of them. Now, I could tell by the way he said it that I actually am as whacked out as the rest of them. He was thinking a different Presbyterian. And in the conversation, it, it, it immediately went, it, it heightened immediately. He told me that he uh, was a com- in a committed gay relationship and started sharing with me why it's such trouble with the church and it's judgmentalism. I had not said anything yet. I did not even bought anything yet. And he was telling me what he thought of my, my narrow way of thinking, even though I had not yet even been able to tell him what I thought. But he was very upset with what it represented when I described him that I'm an evangelical and that I have, do you think this is a sin? Do you think this is a sin? And he kept throwing stuff at me. And I said, yes, 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 but hold on. I, I'm a sinner too. Do you think these are sins? I asked him. No, I don't. I don't think these are either. I said, do you think you are a sinner? I said, let's take off the table the main issue that he and I disagreed with, which was his gay commitment. Let's take that off the table. Let's just put that off the side for a moment and pretend that it's not a sin. Do you still think you're a sinner? No, I don't, he said. I really don't. And you can't say for sure that I am. And I got to admit, I'm not speechless a lot, but it was difficult for me to figure out really where to go with this. If the man would not acknowledge that there was sin at any level in his life, I didn't even know where to, where to head? Now, I left him a Bible and a note the next day because I knew I wouldn't get a word in with him if I talked, so I left it with him and the other person that was working there and had it in the Gospel of John, and I challenged him. I said, you cannot keep repeating the mantra of we can't know and I'm not a sinner for long because life isn't long enough. Please read what it says in John. But you have to acknowledge that a culture that denies sin or starts to build in its people uh, that there is no such thing as sin, it's in decline. I mean, it's depending on itself. It doesn't think it needs a savior, and it's way down the road of judgment. No challenging sin leads to ignoring sin, which leads to denying sin. Also, though, we see very, uh, the very telltale sign that we've witnessed before in this book, the word of God being ignored. In Hosea 12, verse 10, God says, I spoke to the prophets. It was I who multiplied visions and through the prophets gave parables. In other words, I gave you direct revelation. I gave you direct guidance so you would know what to do. 
It wasn't that I was silent. I'm the God who is here and I am not silent. I tell you who I am. I send you prophets. He rose up multiple prophets to speak before this time. He spoke his will clearly to Israel. Referring again to Jacob in verse 12 of Hosea 12, Jacob fled to the land of Aram. There Israel served for a wife. For a wife he guarded sheep. And even in that process of Jacob dealing with Laban, God was raising up the ultimate prophet to that point. Verse 13, By a prophet the Lord brought Israel up from Egypt. And by a prophet he was guarded. In other words, I gave you Moses. I gave you an incubation period in Egypt that you can see now by providence is what made you strong. And what did you do? Well, basically, they killed the prophets. You remember the time Jezebel tried to kill all the Lord's prophets, and Obadiah had to hide a hundred of them in two different caves. That's the reaction to the word of God preached, because that's what prophets were. They were bringing the word of God, and the word of God was heard and ignored, or heard and opposed. That's another telltale sign of a culture in decline. When the word of God is clearly spoken, and if they don't like what they hear, they persecute it, or persecute the messenger who preaches it. We have such a saturation of the Word of God, yet so many people ignore it. Multiple radio stations with preaching and teaching 24-7, Christmas hymns playing with the Word of God, uh, selectively used scripture in public settings by public figures, television, you name it, the Word of God seems pervasive, yet there is an ignoring of it despite its presence and ignoring of it. The church itself, the Word of God is so selectively used in the church anymore that it creates mass ignorance in the laity. A topical preaching has become the norm where a topic is studied and selected and out-of-context verses are used that you can't remember after you heard them anyways. Mass ignorance begets all these other things that we see, and the Word of God is ignored. But also we see in verse 1 of chapter 13, it's very brief, but please notice what happens. It's the faking of repentance when the going gets tough. It's so clear by chapter 12 that judgment's coming. Chapter 13 starts, when Ephraim spoke, there was trembling. In other words, they were responding to this oracle of God through Hosea, and they were trembling. He was exalted in Israel, but incurred guilt through Baal and and died. So there's this moment of acknowledgement that they've acknowledged that their going is bad. It's trouble. A serious knocking at the door. Egypt's knocking at the door. They're losing their wealth. They're losing their security. And repentance is feigned in the midst of such a tough time. We see it all the time. You see it when we were kids. We get caught, and we're sorry but only sorry enough to get away with something again soon. Do you remember not too long ago, back when September 11th happened? And there was a sense, you maybe remember, uh, right after that, that there was this kind of sense, even I think encouragement among uh, those in the church, that perhaps this was something that would evoke repentance. Not to suggest that God sent something as judgment. We don't have the word of God on that to know. But there was definitely a sense, I think, in the country that maybe this was an opportunity for repentance, genuine repentance to happen. And really people across the the various boundaries we have in culture had this kind of humility about them after this happened, this sense of vulnerability we all had, you know, this false sense of security we had before that happened. But how long did it last, brothers and sisters? Not even a couple months, if you go just by church attendance figures. It spiked for a little while, but then it was back to where we are today. Kind of a feigned repentance across the board. That's a sign of a culture that's desperate to hang on to its status. You know what else is evident in a culture in decline? Look at verse 2 of Hosea 13. And now they sin more and more and make for themselves metal images, idols skillfully made of their silver, 
All of them, the work of craftsmen. It is said of them, notice what it says, those who offer human sacrifice kiss calves. It was noted, the irony, that they made calves and worshipped them at the same time, like the, the Baal worshippers offered human sacrifice. One historian talks about the practice in antiquity of sacri- human sacrifice and how Israel was drawn into it. Alan Hefner writes, The religion of the god of Baal was widely accepted among the ancient Jews. And although it was put down at times, it was never permanently stamped out. Kings and other royalty of the ten biblical tribes worshipped the god. The ordinary people ardently worshipped the sun god too because their prosperity depended on the productivity of their crops and livestock. The god's images were erected in many buildings. Within the religion, there appeared to be numerous priests and various classes of devotees. During the ceremonies, they wore appropriate robes. The ceremonies included burning incense, offering burnt sacrifices, and also it consisted of human victims and sacrifice. And you know, if you look back at antiquity, that the sacrifices of human beings within those different cultures was never denied. In fact, it was exalted as nothing more than a cultural tendency. Ancients viewed human sacrifice and sacrifice of babies in particular as a pious act done with solemnity. That was true in the history of Baal. You could see it in the Mid-Americas as well. History has taught us that cultures in terminal decline always resort to human sacrifice as they, they degenerate into the abyss of depravity and degradation. I will only say this at this point to not make a bigger matter of it. And I say it with no angst or anger, but simply concern for our country, for our culture. The widespread practice of abortion illustrates depravity and degradation. Sacrificing babies on the altar of convenience will not be allowed by God forever. The threat of divine judgment is also seen as a bluff. You can see that as the final sign of a culture in decline. Verse 9, chapter 12. I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. I will make you dwell in tents as the day of the appointed feast. In verse 14 of chapter 12, Ephraim has given bitter provocation, so his Lord will lead his blood guilt, leave his blood guilt on him and will repay him for his disgraceful deeds. And then Hosea 13, 7 all the way to the end, gives one of the most vivid, illustrative pictures of the kind of judgment that would come, and it is not pretty. It involves horrific things like verse 16, Samaria shall bear her guilt because she has rebelled against her God. They shall fall by the sword. Their little ones shall be dashed in pieces. This is a picture of what judgment will come. And as Calvin said, hypocrites are sometimes spared thus for a while, yet the wrath of God never lies upon them. And this is done not so much for their own sake, but for as, as for an example to all when it comes. And this certainly came in 740. The Assyrian king plundered all the nation. It kept, it just kept Samaria intact. Then in 735, just five years later, uh, the new king came and slaughtered the inhabitants of Samaria. And then 722, the ten northern tribes ceased to exist as a people. They were no longer identifiable. I want to conclude by reminding you that the preface of the, the thesis of this Uh, these two chapters in particular, is that as Hosea's prophecy draws to a close, we see how a culture goes from godliness to godlessness in order to evoke a response. And the response I want to evoke is not in the nation, our nation. The the response that should be evoked should be in the church. Uh, We should respond to this. And I want to warn us against two different things that seem to beset us. The first one is what is called Constantinianism. That's Constantine the emperor who legalized Christianity. 
But he didn't just legalize it. He even mandated it. And what that produced, for all of its good, what that produced is a cultural Christianity. And a cultural Christianity isn't exactly what biblical Christianity is. In fact, you all know what it is. Maybe you came from a part of a country where everybody says they're a Christian. That's cultural Christianity. Uh, They couldn't tell you uh, what a relationship with Christ meant. They just know that they're Christian. And so Constantinianism, the idea that we're going to mandate Christianity, will not help grow biblical Christianity. We have to be aware of this because sometimes we think that's the answer. And the idea of reclaiming America for Christ, I appreciate the, the sense of it, but the concept seems akin to Constantinianism and avoids the internal repentance work required by the existing church. The church must repent regardless of what culture it's in and regardless of what the government decides to do. Now, I would hope we would influence government as the church has influence and more people come to Christ and more people we get to vote for are in Christ. But we shouldn't think that changing the government will somehow bring in Christianity. Church must repent wherever it is to see God's hand. And repent simply, brothers and sisters, means humble itself. Application of this passage, the way we are to hear Hosea's message and apply it to our day, is to hear it culturally more than nationally. More especially, we the church must see these characteristics in society and first be sure to address them in our own midst before pointing out the manifold shortcomings of our countrymen. If our satisfaction in the church is sought apart from God, then we will only contribute to the issues of our day. Has a self-sufficient pride taken root in our church? corporately, individually? Does our church confront and deal with sin? Do we justify certain acceptable sins? Does our church humbly wait upon the instruction of God's word preached and taught? Is scripture our authority? Do we believe in God's word? Do we genuinely repent when sins are revealed? Do we genuinely believe that God is sovereign and powerful and able to do whatever he wants? When a church lives satisfied in God, humbled and meek before each other in the world outside, honest and direct concerning sin, but with grace and a call for a genuine need of repentance, expectantly, when the church sits expectantly under the word of God, it can't wait to get here. It's not thinking about a soccer game after or about some other activity that's going to occur or where we're going to eat, but I want to sit under the word of God. I want to do it. I want to be there. I have a hunger for this. I want to be satisfied by God. When a church does that, it'll change the culture. When a church yearns to glorify the sovereign Lord in its worship and its work, that is a church that has an impact. I do not think for a moment that is hopeless in our country, but I do not think the hope for our country has anything to do with the government. I think it has to do with the church repenting. And when the church does, I can see this decline that we now see going the other way. And it happened in history. You remember when Nineveh was going towards judgment. God sent to this Gentile nation a prophet to speak, and they listened, and God relented. Certainly, he can do this in our day as well. And humanly speaking, that depends on the action of the church. Such a church that lives this way will necessarily have a profound impact and influence on the larger culture, no matter what country it is in, no matter what laws exist in that place. I cannot wait, and I ask the Lord almost at least weekly, that I could be alive to see what happens in China because it's going to happen at some point. Uh, Biblical Christianity is what's happening there. There, There's no uh, allowance for cultural Christianity. So at some point, you realize right now there are more Christians in that country than there are Americans. That's going to show itself. I don't know how it'll show itself. I don't think it means it'll look like America, but I think it's going to look like something, 
and it's going to look like something profound. And I pray that we can see that in our day. But I pray that we could see it even in our own country as it's, the, the tide is reversed. I want to close with this quote that I think is a wonderful expression of my heart towards this passage, and I hope it is yours as well. Tom Askell says, All the calls to reclaim America for Christ leave me cold. Our real need is to reclaim the church for Christ. When Christ is exalted in his church, when he is loved and revered and cherished with passion by those who bear his name, in other words, when the church starts living like the church, then his body cannot help but make an impact on the culture. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. I thank you for the example, even as tragic as it seems humanly, uh, to see Israel suffer like it does. Lord, I pray that we would recognize these same trends, these same tendencies that repeat themselves in other nations and recognize, Lord, that your call is to Christ and to reliance upon him, satisfaction upon in him. I pray that this church and every brother and sister here would find their satisfaction in Christ alone. And then from there, all these other things be confronted in our lives. Lord, it's our desire that all of our uh, countrymen would come to know Christ, that they would see Christ. And we recognize your normal plan for this is uh, through your church, the transformation of your own people, all of us sinners redeemed, the change in our own lives and how that has effect in everyone around us. Lord, I pray that we would be encouraged, even as we read these troubling words in Hosea, to recognize what you still will do in this day. We pray that you would do it for your glory in Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.